Gear and Beer, episode 45. We're joined today with Alex from Gray Man and Company. However, this time we're not going to be talking about cool guy suits a whole lot. You've been you've been going on some crazy fucking adventures the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, actually, I was talking to somebody uh, in the field, so to speak, and uh, they were actually a customer of Gray Man and Company. And they said, hey, Alex, you realize that you guys are actually more becoming more and more like Kingsman, right? I was like, oh yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. I mean, we are opening up a, a Savile Row top end line. Uh, we actually have been in discussion with them for a while, and we just nailed that down very recently. So we're going to be on Savile Row, like made on Savile Row, just like Kingsman. Uh, and also, you know, they they basically use their tailoring house as a front to run private sector special operations and whatnot, mm-hmm. and. We kind of border on that. We work uh, on and that's what you're dipping your toes also. into. That is yeah. crazy. Is that going to be your it's first like funny. dedicated we, storefront, or do you have them elsewhere? No, it won't be a storefront. Uh, that that the the storefront space is incredibly premium. There's a lot of politics around it. Uh, it will be uh, like a workshop, basically. So we'll have a several row workshop. That is fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, it's really important to diversify, especially considering all the things going on um, politically and, and otherwise. Uh, you know, our, I think our customer, uh, not sure if your listeners know, but uh, our customers definitely do. Uh, the Shanghai lockdown has really messed up our operations tremendously. And um, it's, it's very much a case of, uh, how do I put this? Um, it's, it's like security through diversity to, to, a, a degree, but, you know, we, we emailed our customers who ha- are, you know, have been waiting for quite a while for their suit now because this, the Shanghai lockdown has gone on for about the same time, uh, the length of time as Ukraine has. And we emailed them to apologize, you know, sporadically every, every couple of weeks. And the first time we emailed them out, half of our customers came back and were like, it's fine, man. I'm in Ukraine. <laughs> um, so like, I'm not going to receive it anyways. And then we're like, Oh shoot, we're in Ukraine too. Where are you? <laughs> we end up meeting up. So, um, it's kind of funny how that works. We have a pretty cool client base apparently. That is crazy. And it seems like the, uh, at least the Western media isn't really covering what's happening in Shanghai this time around nearly as much as when lockdowns were initially starting in 2020. And that a lot of people don't know the extent of the lockdowns. Um, and that we've had a similar issue that we have product um, that's just um, sitting in a box that it's so locked down like FedEx ground can't can't get stuff out right now. Yeah, for us, it's the same. In fact, one of our tailors, uh, poor guy, uh, has been locked in our office in Shanghai for a month and a half, not even in his residence. Oh, my God. Um, He's not allowed to go it- home. Yeah, just by pure luck, he was there when they initiated the lockdown, and he hasn't been allowed to leave. Oh, my um, God. So they've been working. <laughs> um, and our, our fitting garments and our, our suits are being made. But obviously, DHL can't get in through the gates to pick them up. So they just sit there. They're that sitting is there for wild. Weeks. Very frustrating. Is, is China – like? are they trying to go for a zero COVID policy? Is is that the, yes. the main motivation? And we will talk this? in – 
Yeah, we'll talk in very politically neutral terms here. Yes. They are still gunning for the, the zero policy. Um, I think that there are many people who say that is, uh, how do I put this, very ambitious with a tremendous amount of costs associated with it. Yes. Yeah. It, it, um, it is a very tall order. Uh, besides that, you mentioned Ukraine and what I really wanted to talk to you about. So what have you been up to? Or let, let's back up further. Like what – uh, where were you at when the conflict started and what caused you to get involved with it? So it started the day before I was meant to fly out to New York City, I'm meeting up with someone that you know um, and getting a lot of uh, executive level steering, trying to poach an executive too. And it was pretty shocking because I think within the intelligence community, it, it was one of those like, it's kind of a magic trick, you know, um, in terms of they do it in plain sight and you never realize what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then when it happens, you're shocked. Um, but Putin had done this in the past, uh, these buildups uh, to affect a political outcome for political leverage. And the assumption was that because Putin is such a calculating guy um, and, and, su and such a, a shrewd brinksman, that he would never actually invade Ukraine because it's that's crazy. Like the costs are huge. Uh, so when he actually did it, you know, fifty to seventy percent of the intelligence community and and the the academics and the analysts and the IR analysts were like shocked. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like, what? And then you take a second and you look back and like, oh, he telegraphed it pretty hard. We were just suspending our disbelief, so to speak. Um, he he put in such a huge number of forces. He had prepared the the psychological uh, operations, domestic uh, political will and public sentiment angle so much that it was kind of impossible for him not to actually try to invade Ukraine uh, when you actually look back on it. But it was very shocking. So I ended up being in New York. I met up with a bunch of my friends at uh, UNHQ uh, and they're, they're very well uh, represented with uh, the Explorers Club and what have you. So we went there and I was looking at it from a very top-down angle, uh, you know, at, at that multilateral level. But uh, Oren, who you met, uh, who's mm -hmm. our operations manager, he uh, he actually almost immediately, within within five days, he packed up his bags and he, he left for Poland. Um, we sent him essentially, I say we sent him, he went on his own initiative, but um, he was basically in advance. And while I was in New York, he was getting that ground truth because I was talking to all these people at ICRC and, and the different uh, embassies and consulates and whatever. Uh, and um, it, I was trying to piece this together. And it seemed like this is a big war. There's a lot of militaries involved. There's going to be a lot of big IGOs. NGOs. Um, I'm sure that this is going to be, you know, uh, have a lot of resources pushed into it. And then Orrin called me and he was like, well, Alex, I'm in, I'm in Helm, which is right, right next to Lublin, but it's right across the border. And there's like nothing here. Like it's all random volunteers who just drove down from like Germany and, and drove up from Spain and what have you. And um, it, it's, it, there's, there's no Red Cross, no MSF, Doctors Without Borders, etc. They would show up eventually, but um, at that time, they weren't on the ground. They were probably doing their fact-finding missions themselves, right? So at that point, I was like, well, all right, I have some experience in this, so I'll pack up my bags, and I, I, I flew from New York to, uh, to Poland. 
Um, did you already have um, a plan in place uh, when, when you left or were you planning on figuring it out as you go? No, it was a figure out as you go. He had given me some, you know, he had given a pretty thorough report on that ground picture. Uh, he had traveled through Lublin and Helm and Zhezhov uh, and Przemysl and all these other places, Hrabene, uh, and he kind of saw it and he took a survey. And then when I arrived, uh, we kind of looked at our strategic direction, like what are the gaps that can be filled? And even when I arrived, we didn't fully know. So we basically had just had to feel it out. And the crazy thing about that place is that you land and you go to hotel lobby, um, a restaurant that has like, you know, high trip advisor scores. You go to the McDonald's at Shemishal, which is right across the border from Lviv. You go to any of those places and it's filled with aid workers, journos, diplomats, for lack of a better word, mercenaries, you know, like security contractors or um, crisis workers or like foreign legion volunteers, any smattering of those. And a lot of them are former SOF, former Intel guys, uh, mixed in with, you know, a Ukrainian Danish person who just decided to come and, you know, support their homeland. It became, it's a very flat kind of, uh, not hierarchy, but it's very flat kind of pool of human resource. And you'll have people who are prior to five days before had no idea what they were doing, working with somebody who used to be CAG or, or, you know, dev grew or something who's also there with a, you know, like team Rubicon or one of the, one of the former SOF uh, or military NGOs. So once we got there, it was just like a networking adventure for four or five days. Once we created that, once we figured out that network, it became clear where the gaps were, what needed to be filled, where the opportunities were. Uh, and it basically we ended up creating and participating in a logistical network, this huge crowdfunded, crowdsourced logistical network that between everybody was able to touch any square foot of that country. Um, all the way to the east into into you know hot zones uh and this is like really the crowdsourcing the crowdfunding element can't be it can't be uh, understated because effectively the large ngos including you know world central kitchen and and doctors the boards and what have you they're really great at these large-scale operations setting up a camp setting up a kitchen augmenting a hospital's capacity but the very basic work of delivering food medicine what have you to people who are trapped in basements in Kharkiv or Kherson or wherever, they were not doing that. So people were starving in their basements. Children or, or people were going without life-saving medication. For instance, like insulin was the big one that we were trying to get in, or asthma inhalers, things that, you know, the lack of that medicine over time will kill you. Um, nobody was really delivering those in a decentralized way. So all these crowdfunded small NGOs, I, I was talking to my friend who's uh, with UK Foreign Affairs uh, and uh, the Foreign Office, and he was basically telling his friends, oh, donate to the Red Cross or whatever, because they can operate at scale. So, you know, the cost is much cheaper for them to procure a widget. But and the, the opposing argument I made was like, no, because they're not actually for all these administrative reasons, insurance, legal liability, duty of care to the people, whatnot, they're not actually getting into those hot zones in the ways that you would imagine they are. So it's a question of like, where is the inefficiency? Choose your inefficiency. Is it the 
the economies of scale and efficiency, where you go with these decentralized networks of people and NGOs like, you know, Buddy from Buddy from Bristol in the UK who drove his own car down, uh, and he's paying full price retail price for baby formula or what have you. Or do you want the inefficiency of the Red Cross, uh, ICRC, or whoever who are purchasing these things for pennies on the dollar, but then are not able to distribute them in, in those ways. And they're not sharing either, obviously, because they need to keep things in house for their own due diligence reasons. Um, I personally think that it's better to have that full price, full retail price, decentralized micro NGO kind of model. Yes, to actually get things where they need to be in a timely manner. Yeah. I mean, we were literally going to grocery stores you know, at points and just filling up our cars with, with uh, groceries purchased with donate funds. And um, there's a, a, heart, a huge network called the UNCN. Their website is uncn.one.one. Uh, and they are a collection of, you know, former military mostly. A lot of them started doing this during the Afghan EVAC. Uh, you know, that whole task force pineapple mm -hmm. kind of uh, digital Dunkirk, whatever they wanted to call it. Uh, and they've kind of pivoted now a little bit uh, and are are operating like very thoroughly in the Ukraine environment. So that's that's a good directory for people who want to know how to get involved and how to make their dollar go as far as possible. Because I've got guys who are in Saltivka, Kharkiv, and they were literally driving towards, you know, already fire shells, indirect fire, and uh, just to deliver food. And, you know, one, one U.S. dollar would pay for a household's worth of food for three days or so. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, we might be – go ahead. Yeah. So what was your day-to-day? Because -day? I know you were there for, for several weeks. You got there, you you found the hole, and you, you set up the network. Um, then then what were you doing to, to – You had to be really adaptable. Like um, the duties would change day-to-day, -day, and it was only a few weeks – but it felt like a year because every day was completely different, different location, different like geography, different taskings. But mostly what we we're doing was driving supplies into Ukraine from Poland or from Lviv, which is like indisputably the, the center of Western Ukraine now, like it's that's or the center of free Ukraine mm -hmm. um, and distributing like the, the one safe city, so to speak, and distributing from there to the outer cities that are more precarious, you know, um, into central Ukraine, Zaporizhia or whatever, uh, or further into hotter areas. And usually what we would do is we would find people who live in those hotter areas and they would drive out to meet us partway or something and we'd swap cargo. So we would deliver stuff to them. Then we would take on refugees to drive back to the border. Uh, and that was, that was generally the, the flow of things. I mean, things have changed a bit now because of desirability of evacuation in certain areas and also just a lack of, of food and supplies, which is something I really wanted to drive home to people, which is that the initial drive of donations has completely dried up. And now a lot of these micro NGOs have zero dollars. Like they don't have enough money to buy like groceries for like a family. Uh, and they're struggling on a daily basis just to raise money from their own friends and family. So, you know, they need something like a thousand dollars US to make one run to a city to feed an entire neighborhood of people. 
and they're struggling to come up with like a thousand dollars. The the donations have just dried up. Um, I'm assuming because the the lightning fast speed of our our news cycle and and what's hot on the internet is that people have just <laughs> forgotten or people aren't involved, aren't thinking about it much anymore. They're not thinking about it, and also the scale of it is there's a lot of needy people, right? It's a it's a country of forty million, so you exhaust goodwill donations pretty quickly unfortunately just yeah. you consume them pretty quickly um i remember talking to somebody who's who was talking about ammo and he's like oh yeah we received this this donation from the british and we were allocated this and they said oh this will this will last you probably a couple of weeks and we burned through that ammo in like two and a half days <laughs> because high intensity warfare is something that we don't have experience with logistically yeah. No, I mean, if if the British are, or whoever are giving this ammunition, they're calculating it based on their experience in Afghanistan or what have you. That that's not relevant anymore. Like those numbers, that data doesn't actually work in this mm, environment. Yes. And the same is for humanitarian supplies, right? So, uh, yeah, they're consuming it, and the news cycle is such. I actually think it was the moment that the moment that we started forgetting about Ukraine domestically, I believe was uh, when Will Smith. Oh my Chris God. The Oscars. I think that was the moment. Was the because stupidest, up then, stupidest news cycle. Uh, but yeah, that's when suddenly people were much more. The story was Zelensky got snubbed by the Oscars. And then immediately everybody stopped talking about that. It was all about mm-hmm. Will Smith and Chris Rock. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Um, it, it was it was kind of disappointing, but I, I also get it, right? Like the news cycle is what it is. Mm-hmm. This is an incredibly tragic war. Yes. And it's one thing it's one thing to turn away and pretend you're not hearing it, but it's another thing to have the spirit and the drive to actually seek out information about it when it's not being presented to you. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what's been so fascinating that. about this for me is that um, I've been following it very closely since it happened and um, I was talking to some people much more knowledgeable than me on the topic. Um, and I said, this is, um, so unique because it's the first time really since the nineties, since there's been, uh, a Western near peer conflict on this scale, that isn't just an insurgency or something like that, uh, in the middle East. Um, and with the internet, now, everyone has phones, everyone, Everyone can broadcast exactly what they're seeing and what's happening so that we have more footage and um, like from the ground resources or information of what's happening than than ever before. Oh, yeah, there's there's been no war like this one. And I say that in like every possible way, there has been no war like this one in every dimension of warfare. Um, But it's interesting. I mean, when you mentioned the Cold War uh, and there are so many cold warriors on the ground, man. It's really funny. It, when you meet legionnaires, I mean, there's like a few types or profiles. One of them is really young guys who are reservists or they got in just before the Afghan and Iraq drawdown. Mm-hmm. So they never really got to you know go on tour, so to speak. Oh, rats. And uh, that's my phone. We'll have to edit that out. <laughs> You're and um, there's also the Cold Warriors. So, like, guys in their, like, 50s now <laughs> who were in in the 90s. And they did peacekeeping tours with the UNDPKO 
the United Nations uh, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, or maybe they went to Bosnia or you know the Gulf or something. But they they trained to fight Russia. Yeah. And they never got like closure to actually do it. <laughs> so now they're there. Uh, it's it's really interesting to see the kind of yeah the the types of people. That's fascinating. Um, how accurate or how honest is the average news reporting um, that we're seeing in, in the U.S. and in the West uh, for what's actually happening on the ground from what you've seen? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Uh, how honest or accurate is our news when it does talk about Ukraine now? Um, oh, man, that's a really good I think that there is an agenda that is being, uh, or, or like uh, a core narrative that is being adhered to. Yes, and that, that was something else I was curious with. That everyone has agreed to to push, um, um, or or to focus on um, maximize Russian defeats and minimize uh, Ukrainian yeah. losses and stuff like that. And 100%. that's that's nothing new. That's been going on for as long as there's been media and wars. Um, but I was curious on, on the scale of it or how much isn't being reported on. Yeah. So it's def that's definitely the case. When I was over there, I had like a, a beat on the pulse. I still do because I'm in, in the same chat groups, the mm -hmm. signal groups and what have you. Uh, and fundamentally, the like when I had when I had that that very close eye on what was going on, I would go through these like emotional ups and downs, you know, because it was a case of it was very much a case of uh, I, I wouldn't I with every push, I would know exactly how bad it went or how good it went. And if it went badly for Ukraine, it would be like very saddening because like, oh, no, now they're going to take this town and then, you know, it's all over. Uh, whereas if you go to CNN and BBC, there's no mention of it at all, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Ukrainians are taking tremendous amounts of casualties. Uh, I mean, there's casualties all around in a way that we've never experienced before in, in our lifetimes as, you know, yes. millennials or what have you. Uh, actually, I don't think anybody, uh, the vast majority of people alive have ever seen casualties like this. It is very much like a World War II uh, level of, of intensity. Uh, so if the news were accurate, I think it would have to depict tragedy at such a scale that's like very incomprehensible. So it's just possible that they're just not able to figure out how to communicate this. Yes. Um, but there's definitely a, a selective, uh, a selection bias happening. And so people I talked to, even when I was very, uh, like sad and pessimistic, people I talked to who are still in the U S and Canada were like, Hey, I hear Russia's ass is getting kicked. And I'm like, well, I mean, not really. Like I, we fit that equilibrium point where the fight is kind of a 50, 50 thing. Uh, and when Russia pushed, uh, Russia consolidated just after Easter in the East, I actually thought that was going to be the end of Ukraine. Or, you know, Ukraine east of the Dnieper River, at least. And I'm actually pretty astonished they've managed to continue uh, pushing that back, uh, pushing Russia back. And they, they recently ejected them from Kharkiv 
it's really impressive because when you think about the amount of talent in Ukraine, they are losing that to attrition like pretty rapidly. The yeah. professional soldiers, the Ukrainian army, the guys on the front, they're the guys with the training who have been fighting since, you know, 2014 and what have you, right? And as they die, they're being like replaced by territorial defense forces and other guys who've had like two months of training. Mm -hmm. People are just getting into it. So yeah, the quality is, is, is shrinking and diminishing. Now I'm sure the same thing is happening on the Russian side. So it's kind of a question of, it's an outlast question, right? All of a sudden, all those, all those battle order analysts at staff colleges and what have you, they're, they're like stars now because <laughs> we're back to a peer to peer conflict. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Well, and unfortunately uh, Russia has the same advantage it's had for hundreds of years and is just the, the sheer number of forces that they can throw at any given conflict. I'm sorry, man. I'm going to say that again. I keep I'm getting a, <laughs> from actually one of these Ukrainian groups. No, no, you're good. Um, I said it's it's similar to um, it's just, Russia has the same advantage that they've had for a very long time that they just have um, overwhelming numbers of of troops that they can continually throw at any conflict and outlast pretty much anyone. Yeah. So that said, the numbers of people like I think that was one of the big that one that's like a caricature of the Russian military. And it's one that we kind of accepted without looking at in depth because they have these huge numbers of people, but the numbers are inflated in such a way where I remember reading that reservists in the Russian military were excluded from all field training exercises because they were so inept at coordination that they would end up screwing up the FTX and then, you know, the commanders, the generals in charge would look bad. So generals like never let reservists anywhere near a field training exercise and so they were never trained in the field <laughs> so, and the reservists make up like 60 to 70 percent of those public figures of total military strength that's so interesting really pumped up uh so when russia's when russia kind of hit resistance in march and had to start drawing upon their their kind of on deck forces they had a really like rough time. I'm sure that the, that the staff officers were tr really trying to figure out who they could bring in in that Goldilocks zone where you can bring in enough numbers of them, but that they have enough basic training to be effective and that they have enough experience to not be routed. So that's why they were bringing guys from Syria and stuff because, you know, it was, it was, it's people in who the Chechens. have... In the Chechens and people from, you know, Eastern Russia... And those people from Eastern Russia they're bringing in aren't being brought in because they have combat experience. They're being brought in because nobody's going to miss them if they die, unfortunately. Right? I think only 5% of uh, the brought in forces are from like Moscow. And Muscovites at, make up a huge percentage of the Russian population, like a huge disproportionate one. Russia is actually very empty. Yes. Uh, you have Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then like a bunch of random, you know, like a lot of Vostok and some, like, you know, regional rural towns so but the point is like if a bunch of muscovites die that's noticeable people will be outraged but you know a mongolian guy or kazakh or a tuvan guy nobody's gonna miss them right uh, yeah, speaking of like the, the outrage um have you been able to um tap into or, or do you know what the average uh, russians outlook on the war is 
Yeah, so I know many people um, and many Russians, and I'm trying to figure out what I can say here. Uh, I know John Seifer, who is a uh, former ch uh, chief of station Moscow, CIA, and he actually introduced me to uh, a defector. And I, I, I want to figure out how, if I can really say this guy's name. Uh, he's got a public profile. I'm sure you can Google him. Mm -hmm. He is an FSB defector, and he's given me tremendous insight into uh, Russian strategic mind on it and tactical mind, but also like all these Russians diaspora people I know, they, they show me their telegram groups and what have you. And most of them are against this war. Uh, I think all, actually all of them are against the war. Uh, some are more sympathetic than others to the Russian side uh, mm. and, and read more into that propaganda. And from what I can see, the majority of Russians, uh, maybe not the majority, but at least 50% of Russians have totally bought into that propaganda. And people call them zombies, and it's it's not far from the not far from the truth. A friend of mine, her grandmother checks in on her every day because she lives in Canada, and her grandmother lives in Russia. And her grandmother thinks it's just a matter of time before the Canadian government rounds up all the Russians in Canada and subjugates them. Based on this, uh, she she believes that very honestly, and uh, you know people will call it a special military operation. Um, it's like a freedom fries kind of thing, you know, yeah. they, they hold to it very tightly. So I think that's at least half the population. That, that is interesting. The polls say it's 70%. I think mm -hmm. it's at least half. Interesting. Cause the, uh, the Russian propaganda machine, at least from what we can see, um, has been working at, uh, maximum, maximum efficiency to try and, uh, to try and you know, keep things favorable. I remember immediately after the invasion, the footage of uh, people in Moscow or protesters in Moscow just immediately getting arrested. Yeah. So that's where the 70% figure is contested because how the polling works is not particularly effective for getting these answers because it's like a random person calling you up and asking you what you think about the war. You know, yeah. and you don't know if they're government or whatever. So you're just going to say whatever keeps you safe. So is it 70 percent people support of Russian people support the uh, war? I don't, I don't think so. But I think it, it's probably at least 50 percent, which is sad. And their narratives are like hilariously ridiculous at points. You know, they're like recently they were like, oh, neo-Nazis or and Nazis don't have to be anti-Semitic. That's not what makes you a Nazi. <laughs> Right. It's being anti-Russian. That's what makes you a Nazi. Ah, excellent. <laughs> so, some professional yeah. goalpost moving. Yeah, and they're really good. And it is very Orwellian. And you saw it a little bit uh, in another near peer that I would love. We would love to discuss. Uh, but when you actually see the levels of it was like double truth uh, and all that stuff, it's kind of like, oh wow. Like I don't think George Orwell would even believe how audacious mm. some of these double truths <laughs> it, it was supposed to be a warning not an instruction manual yeah yeah and they get away with it it's it's really crazy man hearing some of the uh some of the things that uh you know russian true believers are saying yeah. mm. there's another person i know who uh uh their uncle is actually hosting 
uh, Ukrainian refugees in Russia, so f refugees from the Donbass region who are pro-Russian, and he's charging money, <laughs> which is, I was kind of surprised about. I don't know if, like, the Russian state is subsidizing that or not, but... What is he charging for? The refugees for? in Russia. For, for rent. <laughs> oh. For hosting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I... Which kind of, yeah, it's kind of flabbergasting, but okay. Mm -hmm. I feel like the refugees who end up in Russia don't have quite as good a time as the ones who are in Poland or Romania. Yeah. I'm, I've also been curious because I see all these videos of um, uh, weapons being, being picked up or we've all seen the videos of tractors uh, hauling some kind of armor from either side. Um, how, how much of this equipment, like – do you think it's just disappearing into the void to be redistributed around Europe or the world? I mean, that was a big Libyan question too, right? Mm -hmm. And the Arab Spring in general. Uh, that's a good question I don't have an answer for. I think that, I mean, this is a high-intensity war, mm -hmm. and munitions are just being consumed at a very high rate. So I think by the end of this, there will be less left over than we fear. Yeah. That said, I mean, the border controls are pretty good between Ukraine and the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And I, I know this from crossing that border a yeah. lot. Sometimes wearing armor, sometimes not, dealing with different personalities at the border. Um, and, you know, when you cross wearing armor and you get the wrong border guard, it becomes a very long process, unfortunately. Yes. So... And when you cross back from Ukraine, uh, there's definitely uh, a bit more secondary that goes into it. So I want to say that that danger is not as high. That said, a ton of dual use or equipment trafficking is happening mm -hmm. uh, in, into Ukraine. And it is 100% local leos and and what have you looking the other way like night vision and armor and stuff like that maybe not maybe not arms in terms of like firearms small arms ammunition but definitely a lot of that equipment that would in normal circumstances come under a crap load of scrutiny so there's a the gray market is gigantic yeah i want to talk about mcdonald's for a sec because that mcdonald's and shemishal definitely area and it is where I saw, like, literally guys, you know, like, stacks of bills trading night vision and, and armor and stuff. It was like Ma's Eisley Cantina. Uh, that is you know, crazy. you had these foreign volunteers, security consultants, you know, that umbrella term mercenary, mm -hmm. uh, refugees, because that's their first stop from Ukraine into Poland is at McDonald's. Uh, aid workers. There was, like, an Italian paramedic like ambulance driver in his italian uniform passed out in a booth in the corner when i first got there and then every now and then there's like kids like teenagers like local teenagers because it's not a big town it's a small town and the staff at that mcdonald's like blew me away i like i get emotional thinking about mcdonald's now because they were so professional and dedicated despite the fact that this is very much out of their job description the traffic has gone up 10x, 15x from what it's meant to be. And all they're dealing with is like traumatized children, you know. 
And I remember seeing this kid spill his Coca-Cola. And in the, the time it took for me to process, thinking, should I stand up and help clean it up? Like, blah, blah, blah. There was immediately a staff member there, like, cleaning it up, getting him a new Coke, giving me a little boy, a little pat on the head. And, you know, these staff members are, like, halfway to 1,000-yard stare. They're so exhausted. The bathroom is immaculate, despite the fact that the flow, the, the foot traffic is so huge. They are so dedicated and so professional. And it's it's like very inspiring to see. I passed out in that McDonald's at like three in the morning or two in the morning or something like that, waiting for some guys to return from the Ukrainian border. And when I woke up, there was just a fresh cup of coffee in front of me. And the manager of that McDonald's, his name is Wojak, uh, I went up to him because he was like mopping the aisles. And I said... You know, like, oh, I'm really sorry. I clearly have stayed. Like, I'm the only one left. You guys clearly closed now. I'll get out of your hair. And he's like, no, no, no. You guys stay as you stay as long as you need. I know what I know. You're you're waiting for someone, right? And uh, what your friends are doing is very brave. And I said, you know, well, you know, you guys are working in a way that's really amazing, and it's it's very inspiring. And he said, well, you know, it's just our job. You know, <laughs> it's like a you kind of almost Eastern European mentality, you know, like they don't accept praise very well. And, and then I said, well, it's not really your job, right? Like you're kind of like managing a refugee center at this point, not just McDonald's. And he said, well, you know, it's our job now. And that very much encapsulated the Polish spirit that I found throughout, which was really inspiring, despite the history between Ukraine and Poland, right? Like Bandera and Galicia mm -hmm. and all that stuff. They have like bad blood in the past. Nobody talks about that now. Every single person I met in Poland was incredibly like generous whenever it came to discussing it or providing aid or whatever. Those cities in Poland are full of women and children now. Like demographics are crazy skewed because there's millions and millions of Ukrainians in Poland now. And they've opened their arms, uh, their their arms up to them, and they're, they're basically giving them whatever they need. And um, I think the rest of the Western world isn't doing enough to support Poland and mm -hmm. Romania, you know, uh, because like it's kind of like Greece when Syria happened, like they end up holding the bag, yeah. you know. And I know that Greek people feel like pretty resentful that the rest of the EU abandoned them to just take in all these refugees. And I, I don't want the same thing to happen to Poland or Romania. Um, but yeah, their, their country is, feels like it's at war, man. When you go east of Zhezhov towards Ukraine, you start seeing like Heinz, like attack helicopters with missile pods doing like, you know, racetracks over your head and on the highway, all you see like Sam's uh, along the highway, you see military vehicles, like the, tra the traffic on the highway becomes like 80% military vehicles and of all the way, like to Krakow, you have like these foreign advisors just chilling in their camo in these like tourist towns, these beautiful medieval old towns, right? Their, their country has like, is like, it feels like it's at war. And I'm sure that the local residents of it, it are very inconvenienced by all of this. That's, that's amazing. Do you know how many trips across the border you made? I'm sure we could count the passport stamps. Um, I tried to stay in Poland as much as possible. I made a bunch of promises to friends and family 
I'm older now, so I'm not chasing the elephant as much. And from a risk perspective, you know, at some points you have to be in Ukraine and different parts of Ukraine to do your job. But when you don't have to be, I'd rather not be because even though Lviv is relatively safe, I mean, it still gets still gets attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, it's usually in the suburbs or, or, you know, in this industrial park just outside of Lviv or what have you. But the, the risk is still there. So I try to be in Poland as much as possible. Uh, and there's also there's like timing issues around curfews and what have you. Uh, and that affects when you do these runs, it's actually a lot like the cannonball run, you know, from New York mm-hmm. to California. Because you have to calculate your gas, you have to calculate the time of day, the weight of the vehicle, all that stuff. Because if you are driving from, you know, one place to the other and you don't leave a buffer or what have you, and you get in after curfew, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> the militia are twitchy, like TDF guys. Some of them are like 18-year-old kids who don't know how to work the freaking safeties on their AK-74, you know. Um, never seen an Asian guy. <laughs> so... <laughs> So um, it, it gets a little hairy, man. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's definitely a case of uh, planning things out to the t the hour. And sometimes we've made trips and we encountered obstructions. We had to take detours, and we realized that once you recalculate with the detour, we can't make the run today anymore because we're going to get there way too late. We have to turn around and go back to Lviv. Uh, so I mean, I try to stay in Zhuzhov and Przemysl and places like that, or Lublin as much as possible right on the border within an hour's drive of, of Lviv uh, and coordinate it that way. But I probably got there, got like went to Ukraine a dozen, dozen plus times. That's crazy. You said um, crossing the border and wearing body armor and all that stuff. Did you guys also um, mess with sourcing local, uh, local firearms or just focus on the armor? No, just armor. That that got, you know, legally speaking, too hairy for for us, especially since we were kind of going on company business and, you know, mm-hmm. the brand is associated with it enough that I didn't want to screw with our import-export forever uh, and Interpol and what have you. But the body armor industry is very fascinating there. There's a bit of like, like it's such a cringe word, there's a bit of like toxic masculinity built into this because <laughs> these guys are like wearing homebrew like auto mechanic shop steel plates at like 15 pounds a plate. Oof. And I'm trying to get them like level three plates from mm-hmm. really high end places that are like two pounds, three pounds a plate. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, we need level four plus And you know, it, it's the weight is fine. And I'm like, 15 pounds of plate is not fine. <laughs> you know, no. and like, what? you're not man enough to wear 15 pounds of plate. I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> You'd be exhausted in an hour, man. But uh, that that kind of industry, the the kind of trafficking of it, so to speak, uh, and other equipment became, it's like it's really fascinating, especially when the vast majority of the procurement people are like amateurs and they see the the higher number, like level four, and they're like, oh, we want that, and it's like, well, a three will still stop five four five and seven six two and what have you. And a three plus will stop five four five steel, like a VN ten or whatever it is, uh, or the seven N ten, and like what a four will stop and what a three plus won't. That's like a pretty small kind of buffer of of pretty exotic rounds, like thirty out six black tip or whatever it is. 
but uh yeah they 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 just see the bigger number and they want to go for the bigger number um so that was frustrating at points also uh but when you have when you're transporting across the border like i was saying it all depends on which border agent you come across because some are totally cool that some will rip apart your vehicle uh once they see it and they might try to confiscate it or something like that there's also like a gray market or black market for that kind of confiscated kit happens at checkpoints if you don't have the right paperwork as in if the checkpoint people like believe that there's not going to be a powerful person missing the kit they'll just take it um i was wearing my grayman and company polo shirt the whole time the the merino polo shirt there's a plug for a polo shirt it's uh it stood up well it literally i brought one shirt with me it was that polo shirt and i wore it for a month and a half and i just hand washed it every couple days or every few days in like the hotel sink um and i would wear concealed armor under that sometimes uh because it's better to look like just a pure aid worker than an aid worker that's wearing body armor because for some reason some border agents think that aid workers shouldn't wear body armor i don't know um but yeah it was a it was a really inconsistent regulatory environment and i'm starting to feel like we're not connected test test okay oh yeah cool. gotcha. microphone decided to take a nap oh, <laughs> we'll, <love> that. <laughs> we'll edit that out um but it's interesting that you uh, what you talked about with the body armor um and the arbitrary requirements we had um a similar thing we had a customer who was an itar exporter that had an order for it was several hundred um helmets uh going to ukraine that their their customer specifically uh needed level three um nij certified helmets um and that they had to have arc rail adapters on the side that's a lot of helmets like especially for their price range we could dig up um, it's not too hard to find a conix box full of ach helmets that are level three and will stop everything you need and all that stuff but like no it has to be they have to be high cut with ach or um, with arc rails on they said they they don't want anything besides that yeah, there's a lot of look cool factor in forming yeah. those procurement requirements. Because <laughs> I was like, do you, especially, it's funny because a lot of those came to me from civilians, right? So, like, how that chain seems to work is like an end user makes the request, it goes to like buddy of end user, another buddy of that buddy, and then eventually it gets to me or somebody else. And they're like, oh, we need like grade four helmet with this like thing and they send a they send a picture and it's like a, a night vision shroud and like mm-hmm. hard rails or whatever. And I'm like, do you even know what those things are? <laughs> like, do you have anything like, to uh, attach to that? Yeah. And they're like, uh no. I'm like, okay, so that's like a night vision mount. And if this guy's territorial defense, he's not getting night vision goggles. No. Like it's just not gonna happen. <laughs> so, not through official channels. Yeah. So, and like, is he going to be able to use them? Probably not. So I, I wouldn't worry about it. I would settle for, cause right now he's wearing a bike helmet. So why don't we do like an incremental upgrade, you know? Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, very arbitrary kind of requirements that are being thrown around. It, it's, but, it's been fascinating seeing how internet cool guy gun culture has like actually been affecting, um, what, what people see and what people have used as we've seen pictures of, um, either Legion volunteers or Ukrainian guys with, 
um, the latest, coolest Gucci kit that you saw on whatever name the large Instagram page on a few months ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it's a fashion show in some ways. And with the the armbands, a lot of these guys look like airsoft dudes, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, especially since some of them, especially territorial, territorial defense, they're wearing, you know, like made in China kit, uh, you know, like uh, AliExpress plate carriers and stuff. So they actually look like airsoft dudes. It's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we got a, it's a contrast because the request list we got from hospitals for medication and x-ray machines and stuff like that. They were incredibly specific and they were like well-reasoned. Yeah. But anything military was just like cool stuff. (laughs) What's cool. Yeah. I was surprised I didn't get like, I don't like Punisher skull patch requests and stuff, but I guess they actually make those domestically. I've seen them. Yes. Ukrainian Punisher skulls. So, you know, so uh, something else that, um, I'm curious. I don't know if you've had any experience with them, but obviously have not been portrayed well in the media. And I'm I'm curious of their actual size and or influence is the I think it's the Azov Battalion. I'm not sure. Azov Battalion. Yeah. Azov Battalion. Yes. So the history of that's pretty open source. Uh, I don't have that much more insight than like Wikipedia would have. Uh, it's it's uh, a group that definitely has those ties or, or did. It was. Uh, restructured, disbanded, whatever you want to call it, to essentially redistribute those Nazi and those extremist elements out. I think the idea being that, you know, consolidated into one group, they actually end up being a politically significant Mm -hmm. force that represents a danger. And once you spread them out, you know, the risk of that is smaller. But they, they definitely kept all those fighters because they were good fighters and they need fighters in a war. Uh, I think that throughout the West right now, there is a presence of far extremist political beliefs. Mm -hmm. So when you actually look proportionately at what they, what proportion of the Ukrainian population is represented by that, it's probably something like 10%, uh, which is not far off of, if you look at France and Canada and the U S and, you know, we, we have, I mean, in the U S it's by part, it's, it's two party system, So not as much, but uh, in the UK, you'll find those farther left and right parties, they probably add up to about 5 to 10% also. Mm-hmm. So it's not that far off. And I didn't encounter myself any anybody with that kind of racist, xenophobic, or Nazi beliefs. And I did meet a Romani, like quote-unquote gypsy, which mm-hmm. I think is technically a slur now. Uh, <laughs> and her son had volunteered to fight with the Ukrainians against russia and for romani you know it doesn't matter how progressive your european country purports to be they are not well liked in basically any european no no that's that's what's hilarious when when i see um like on the internet europeans making fun of america for its checkered racist past and and then you 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 bring up romania and, and suddenly the conversation changes yeah, like Romania, uh, like the 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 Romanis in Romania were treated like garbage for a while. Yeah. Like, I mean, to be fair, they don't do themselves a lot of favors culturally sometimes, but you know, they are they're definitely disenfranchised. And so, for a Romani to volunteer to fight for Ukraine, despite I'm sure he has faced prejudice through his life to an extent, um, to what extent we don't know, 
for him to be willing to do that tells me something about okay, like the the xenophobia xenophobia problem, this post Bandera Nazi problem I talked about earlier, and you know that Polish Ukrainian kind of relationship and how complicated it is. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's nearly as big a problem as Russia would like us to believe. I'm sure. Yes. Um, is it a bigger problem than you know these middle left uh, news agencies would like us to believe? I think it is a bigger problem. We're trying. We're just sweeping on the rug a bit, a bit. But I don't think it's big enough for us to kind of hesitate in our support for for Ukraine. Interesting. That makes sense. I hadn't heard that they had been. Um... Uh, redistributed throughout the military, according to the to the news media, they're uh, they're still there and and still a, a great threat to everyone. But that would yeah. make sense. So I mean, Azov is still the Azov Battalion still exists as a group, but the original founders of Azov, like the first members who were more neo-Nazi, they they've been kind of distributed all all over the place. So what the Azov Battalion is now is much more, uh, for lack of a better word, I don't know, like cosmopolitan politically with many different like political beliefs, but the heritage is still one of a certain level of bigotry. So it yeah. still has that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what do you think the, the end game will look like? Do you think Russia is, is planning on stopping this at all? Or what, what do you think their Putin's goals are? I mean, Putin has, Put himself in a corner right like he, he mm-hmm. can't stop yeah so i don't think russia has an intent to stop but i think they may be forced too soon because i actually think you know this is like i was saying ups and downs i want an up right now and they just ejected russia from kharkiv so i'm feeling like they could actually do this potentially uh but the longer this stretches out i mean you see pakistan sri lanka there's going to be an arab spring 2.0 because of the food situation globally uh, metals also, nickel, titanium, these things come from Russia. Uh, and then you saw Transnistria, there were, there's been like unrest there and explosions there from terrorist attacks. So like this is spreading and the longer it drags out, the more unstable the world will become. Mm-hmm. We're already looking at an economic problem for the next three quarters that are minimal, right? Because the planting season has been interrupted now. So all the food inflation we're seeing now doesn't even compare to like, like the Russian Ukrainian conflict is not priced into the food inflation we're experiencing at this moment because we haven't hit the harvest season. It's going to be worse in the harvest uh, season. It's going to get you know, worse. Excellent. Yeah, like a lot worse. So the longer this goes, the worse it is for the planet. I mean, that's the only thing we can say with certainty. Uh, I really have, I really have no idea. But what I can say is that the humanitarian situation in Ukraine is only getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, realizing that everybody is having a tough time, uh, whatever dollar they can spare that goes to these micro NGOs, again, UNCN.1, uh, I've been working with AFG free, like Afghan, like AFG free, and they have direct manpower in Kharkiv, literally buying food and driving to Kharkiv, uh, if, if you don't want to go for, and these are 501c3 registered, right? So mm-hmm. you get your tax breaks and everything too. But if you want to go bigger, you can go for Razon for Ukraine in the US or the Canadian Ukrainian uh, Foundation in Canada. And it, that dollar, that $10, $20, whatever it is, that feeds, $20 feeds 
you know, an entire like residential block of people for a few days. Mm. That's a big deal. Absolutely. That makes a difference. Um, And what I've tried to say to people is like, you know, there's two things that end up mattering in your life at the end of the day, which is that the people you love are happy and that someone will remember you after you die. And 20 bucks to keep people alive, they'll remember you. They may not know your name, but they'll remember you for the rest of their lives. That's a certain level of immortality. That's really hard to get. Absolutely. What would you recommend for someone who uh, likes you wanted to be more involved um, than just donate? Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll double down a little bit on fundraising because if you like our right now, the bottleneck is absolutely money. When I went there, it was logistics. We were driving in, we were renting vehicles ourselves, which was a whole headache getting across the border, all this kind of stuff. Now we have created those logistical networks and infrastructure. It's not really necessary uh, for for foreign nationals to be there to do that kind of work. If you have special skills like medical, 100%, uh, Kiev, Kharkiv, uh, even Venezia, places like that need medical professionals. But uh, for the the kind of logistical work, we have that capability. What we don't have is things to deliver. So the best way to help is to fundraise, whether you're donating yourself, you're talking to high net worth people or corporations that have deeper pockets and convincing them to do it. Like that is the best way to help um, and have an outside effect. If you are looking to go yourself for whatever reason, uh, what I would say is think two or three times. Think about how you're going to equip yourself there. Bring everything with you. PPE wise, right? Don't fixate on the little details like we were talking about the look cool factor. Mm-hmm. Don't fixate if you know you have arc rails in your on your lid or not. <laughs> um, think about, <clears throat> you know, m- you should have military experience, uh, and if you don't, then like you have to kind of really learn how to pack. Like I said, I wore my polo shirt, the Graham and Company Merino polo shirt. That one polo shirt, I brought two pairs of socks, actually three pairs of Merino socks, um, and you have to learn how to travel really light because you're going to be moving around a ton. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't bring like ballistic eyewear except for the Graham and company sunglasses that are coming out soon. It's back resistant also more plugs, but things I can do double, triple, quadruple duty, you know, um, pack like you're going out into the bush basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll, you'll be okay. Are there any um, specific organizations you'd recommend for someone that wanted to you know, volunteer their manpower? If you're former military, again, you can go to uncn.one and there's a huge directory. Like Team Rubicon is the first name that comes to mind. Uh, I also worked with Aman Lara, who are uh, kind of like a refugee resettlement military charity in Canada. Uh, Any of those small ones, if you can bring something to the table. But, you know, it's, it's crazy. People are being super selective now because... Now it's like accommodations and resource locally is actually harder to come by than volunteers. Yeah. So if you've got EOD background, if you have a medical background, that's awesome. And they'll watch you. If you have combat arms, but you don't plan to fight, which is totally cool. Um, I mean, there was a ton of logistical clusters that, you know, happened with legions and what have you for a while. So um, it's kind of smoothed out now. So if you want to fight, you can. Uh, 
But if you don't, and I 100% support that decision, uh, it's it's tougher to find a role. Like uh, like I mm-hmm. said, logistical and administrative roles are are pretty filled. Um, but yeah, you can contact any of those uncn.1 charities, like uh, .one, fully spelled out, Oscar November Echo, and they'll be able to help kind of place you. Excellent. Are you planning on going back? I have unfortunately suffered uh, some injury. So oh, yes. Can, can you I, elaborate on that? Yeah, I blew up my back and my hips. I got a labral tear in my hips, which is great. That oh, I need uh, probably going to need some surgery. Um, so the outlook is not great on the immediate term. But I am starting uh, an organization called uh, Rescue Racing. Uh, which is a ridiculous concept. When I was in Poland, I started meeting with these uh, street racers, mm-hmm. like Krakow Night Racing and stuff like that. And I've convinced uh, a few to basically drive immediate critical care relief, like insulin and stuff like that, mm-hmm. to different cities in Ukraine. And it's basically Fast and the Furious in yes, real life. Yes, that's fantastic. Are you familiar with the uh, stealth Camaro from the Bosnian War in the 90s? Yeah, the ghost Camaro. Yes. So uh, the team of the Ghost Runners, which yes. is like a portmanteau of the Ghost and Cannonball Run. We're getting the website up soon and stuff. And I may have to go back to help uh, you know, put that together because uh, it's uh, getting you know street races coordinated. It's actually surprisingly difficult. But I, you know, it all be administrative if I go back in, in a matter of, you know, weeks, basically. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely report back from there. Can, can you say how you blew your back out? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, like we were talking about before, wearing level four plates every day is not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, I should it's have old. switched to level threes. I really should have. Uh, and it's a lot of logistics work. It's a lot of heavy lifting. It's a lot of lifting material and people. And I had to lift somebody who we were trying to keep on a board, basically. And uh, he's a kid. He's very lightweight. And it was just me and his, like, Babushka, uh, who's, you know, teeny. And the other members of my team had to run off to do a couple things. And then we got, like, a bing bong on the train that was basically, like, all aboard. It's going to leave. And that train only goes twice a day. So we had to get him on. So I lifted him myself, even though it's kind of a two-man job. And it's just a really weird, awkward angle, you know. You have to, like, bend to your side. And my back's already kind of crap. My knees, ankles. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners can probably relate. So uh, after I put him down, I was like, man, I'm going to really feel tomorrow. And the next day, I just could not even get out of bed. I had to like, and it's actually a really pathetic story. Uh, so hay fever hit real hard. It was a beautiful spring day, so hay fever hit. So I woke up congested, barely able to friggin' breathe. And I tried to get out of bed. I couldn't. So I had to roll out of bed and crawl on the ground to my suitcase to get some, like, antihistamines. And then the air raid siren went off. Oh, no. It was like... Yeah, it was really pathetic. It was kind of like it was a little bit like that Wolf of Wall Street Quaalude scene, mm-hmm. where he's just like crawling on the ground, like <laughs> it, it felt very pathetic, but like comically so. Like I, I look back on it, kind of laugh, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that is unfortunate timing for the air raid sirens. Uh, did you guys yeah. have any serious close calls with that? Not with the air raid sirens. We did have what felt like close calls with early on in the conflict. The Ukrainian uh, checkpoints were pretty scary. Uh, mm -hmm. They were twitchy. They weren't very well trained, uh, depending on where you were. If you were like in a major city like Lviv, it's like, okay. But if you were, you know, between, let's say, Lviv and Venezia, and you're driving through like a neighborhood, like that checkpoint is manned by locals. Like I said, those like 18 year old kids and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be pretty scary, especially if you're driving like past curfew at night. You with have kit. to do everything for them. Yeah, yeah with kit. Yeah. You got to turn on those interior lights. You got to approach it like 20 kilometers an hour with like your left hand out the window, you know, kind of a thing. And there were there were some serious moments where, you know, some people thought I was a Russian spy. And I won't go into tremendous detail, but it was, yeah, it was pretty scary. Uh, there were points at which I was like, man, like if this guy twitches because his finger's on the trigger, like I'm dead. <laughs> so, Yeah. They were just, you know, there was early on, they were barely trained. But as the conflict went on, I noticed the number of checkpoints dropped by like 80%. Hmm. Uh, I think they realized that they were more liability than they were worth. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think the, the, the whole Russian saboteur thing stopped. Or not, if not stopped, slowed down a lot just because, you know, your covert action guys, they were getting caught and there are just very few of them now. So... I think it's much safer now from that green on blue, blue on blue aspect than it was in the opening days. Very interesting. Um, Alex, man, thank you so much for coming on and, and telling your story. Uh, before we head out, um, if you just want to go over one more time for the people at home, um, how they can help, where they can donate, um, and what else Grayman has going on. You've mentioned some cool stuff that's in the works. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, this is a shouted apology to our customers between Ukraine and <laughs> Shanghai. Our operations have been completely disjointed, uh, but we are pivoting and we're we're working on it. Uh, we're working with new suppliers. We have Savile Row coming up, which is very exciting. We just have to basically add them to the website. Uh, so if you if you are at that level where you're getting Savile Row tailored suits, we can accommodate that. Uh, and we've got the sunglasses coming out soon, uh, ballistic impact resistant, Matsuchili acetate, really beautiful. And, uh, we have our polo shirts, which are launched. And again, uh, both Orin and I were wearing these polo shirts and nothing but these polo shirts the entire time. And it was totally fine. And they, you know, they dried off. We would hand wash them and they dry off within, you know, half an hour hanging or hanging in the hotel. It was, it was nuts. Uh, to help in Ukraine, there's tons of ways. Uh, again, that directory is uncn.1, and that's like a great directory. There's maybe like uh, two dozen different micro NGOs in there. That is 100% the, the best way to help us fundraise for those guys because they're literally just going to take that money and like buy food and deliver it to people who have been trapped in their basements or buy insulin. We delivered insulin to mothers whose children were in diabetic comas, you know, and yeah. that's like a really horrible thing to watch your kid over the course of however many days slide into a coma and be unable to stop it. Mm -hmm. So it's super, super necessary to, to get those supplies out. Excellent. 
Awesome, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, man. It's it's always a pleasure. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you in in Vegas. Oh, absolutely. Soon. Yeah.